As I've said on some previous evenings, I appreciate the opportunity first just to sit together and to create a a community of people who value the inner life and value silence and stopping and listening in especially such busy times. And I also value for myself the opportunity to speak because it's a way of reminding myself of things that I like to hear about. And you kind of sit in and get to over-listen. It's true. I don't always know what's going to come out. So I want to talk a little bit tonight about goodness and faith, maybe picking up a bit on what we spoke of last week, speaking of Krishnamurti and if you remember that, uh, also the the talk focused somewhat on the value and purpose of living more mindfully or fully in the moment. When I was back on the East Coast, I visited uh, the first large peace pagoda that had been built in this country. It was just built two years ago on a hill in Leverett in western Massachusetts near Amherst by the Nichiren Shoshu Japanese Buddhists, the Pure Land Buddhists, who go around the world beating the drum and marching from city to city and, and uh, speaking about peace. Very beautiful people uh, headed by a man who died a year or so ago at age 102 uh, named Fuji Guruji, I think was his short name. There was a long Japanese name for Fuji Guruji. Um, and he walked everywhere beating his drum and talking about peace. And they decided some people who had uh, what remained of a, probably of a hippie farm in Massachusetts, offered land in this beautiful hillside for a pagoda, and they agreed they accept land and build pagodas when people offer it to them and offer to help build it. They said, for the first one in America, let's make a big one. <laughs> so they did. They took the land and they got, they had their Japanese designer and they brought uh, sculpt sculptors from Sri Lanka to do these exquisite Buddha statues in each of the four quarters of it. And on top of this hillside, in the most unlikely place near Amherst is this enormous, I mean, let me think of what, uh, do you know the church in, the, in downtown San Francisco on top of the hill that's quite ele elegant but looks a little bit like the rotor in the middle of a washing machine? <laughs> Forgive me, whoever <laughs> designed it. I like it, actually, but it's large. This pagoda is bigger than that but it's, it's round. It's a huge, white, br brilliant white stupa with a giant kind of a metallic flame and crown on the top of it. People offered them this land, and they started to basically camp there in and outside of this farmhouse, and they take things only as gifts. They don't go soliciting but they take what's offered. And so they said, we're going to build this peace pagoda. There was a community meeting. The community was a bit up in arms, but they, they somehow met every bit of resistance with the, of the community with the most uh, 
uh, gentle nature and good-heartedness that gradually the community became quite proud of them. And people would bring food and people would come over and add their labor and mix concrete and things. And the way that building is done, especially in Asia, for those of you who have ever been, th- have ever been there, is that if you have some sand, some sacks of cement to mix with it, water, a few boards by which you can make forms, and bamboo to make uh, the kind of platforms to stand on, and a little bit of iron rebar to stick in there so it doesn't fall apart. You can build anything, 50 or 100 stories high, it doesn't matter. You kind of put the boards up and mix the concrete and pour it in and then build a little bamboo around it and climb up to the next floor. When it hardens, move the boards up and pour a little more in. And I've seen enormous buildings built in Hong Kong and Bangkok and things by an army of people on little bamboo uh, tiers pouring with baskets the... uh, concrete in one layer after another. Anyway, they built this huge pagoda, and one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. I've seen many in Asia. I was speaking to the monks, and one of the women who helped sponsor, and uh, also she went around collecting goods and food and money to, to help it be built. And she said, throughout the entire building of it, it was a focus of people's goodness and activity people who'd been in the peace movement who had no understanding of it. Why aren't they out marching in Washington or trying to do something active to stop the bombs or something? But they came by and they saw it and they got caught up in the delight and the energy of doing this as a symbol and a statement for peace. People in the local community who were just curious came by and then the the monks would get their kids involved in mixing sand and cement and everybody got excited about it. She said they didn't have a lot of money, and at one point they ordered uh, some of the things they needed, both sacks of cement and concrete uh, uh, and uh, steel rebar, the steel rods that go in to reinforce it. And the cement came, and they paid for it, and then they kind of ran out of money, and then this big truck load of steel came up. And the guy came, and he unloaded all the steel that they'd ordered next to the pagoda, and he said, that will be $8,000, please. And they said, well, actually, we just spent it. We don't have it right now. We spent it uh, on uh, something else, and um, we're sorry you brought it up, and you already unloaded it. (laughs) And I guess at first the man was a little bit upset, expecting to be paid and not knowing what kind of account or whatever he would have with these people. And he looked around and he saw the monks and he saw all these people mixing stuff and he just stood there, this woman told me. And then he said, well, if I can't trust you, who could I ever trust? (laughs) And he drove off and he said, pay me when you can. And she said, every week, something like that would happen. Hmm. I don't know how many of you have had the experience in your life of being part of something that's greater than your own uh, kind of individual needs. Uh, Some people had it in uh, being involved in in certain political or social movements. Maybe it was... Uh, during the Vietnam War or various other things. But there's a kind of goodness that can be tapped in people when it serves an end 
that's greater than our small self that is really wonderful. Unfortunately, in our busy times, it doesn't often come out unless there's difficulty. In the flood, everyone in San Anselmo or Fairfax comes down and fills sandbags or, or, uh, or helps their neighbors. But it's there. It's something really basic in human beings and in our heart. There's, there's a place that we take refuge in Buddhist practice. The first refuge is refuge in the Buddha. And one of its deepest meanings is to take refuge in our own Buddha nature, in our own basic goodness. To have a kind of faith in the human heart. Probably the most wonderful kind of faith that you can have. And that faith doesn't say that there's going to be an absence of suffering or pain or difficulty in life. Right? <laughs> that we all understand. That's kind of the given. But that somehow all of that is workable through the hearts of human beings. It's that faith which opens the door to that kind of goodness, that energy, that beauty that is within us. It's a faith in the underlying and basic goodness of human beings. What a thing to have faith in. It does not mean that human beings don't act in cruel and terrible ways, even a lot. But that if you can get in there and dig under that in anybody, in any situation, if you look at the bottom of people's hearts, there is goodness. That it's really there. My wife is involved in a kind of therapy called sand play therapy. Uh, she studied in Zurich with the old woman, Dora Kolf, who was the founder of it and a close friend of Carl Jung. And uses First it started with children, now it works with adults as well. It uses a little sandbox and lots of figures and you make worlds in there, whatever kind of comes out of you. Many of you may have heard of it since in California therapy is like breathing or <laughs> walking or something. Anyway, and what's interesting to watch, there are many things to say about it, but what's interesting to watch is that people will come in, and even if they're in a lot of pain or they're in a great deal of conflict in their lives, that's what comes out, and there'll be war scenes and... and uh, uh, knights or, or Darth Vader or soldiers or battles and all those, those kind of things, as well as beautiful kinds of landscapes and so forth. But there's a process which is really uh, an inner and an unconscious, an organic process that takes place as they make a series of scenes. Because the unconscious works through symbols rather than words, and so it allows the unconscious and the level, deeper levels of the mind and the heart to have a language and a, and a safe place to work out what's going on. And as they do, no matter where people start and what horrendous difficulties and battles and things that they place there, over time, through that, 
attentive listening and the safety of that space, they come to a new aspect of themselves, of their being, that's really deeper. And there's always in that process a resolution. There's always a coming to the center. There's always a touching of goodness. If there is safety and time and space to do it. At the bottom of every kind of therapy, I think in the bottom of even the most terrible things in the world is a movement of our being to connect with one another. I think even aggression and war sometimes is a, is a kind of twisted movement of love to try and make contact or to try and resolve that pain or suffering of separation in some way. I don't mean to make some great philosophy about war. I don't know. I mean, this is some conjecture. But I will say that in doing a lot of years and hours of working with people in meditation and in therapy, admittedly, I see people at their best, you know, at retreats and things like that. I'm not working with EDM men or something like that. But when people go back in their lives, in their minds, and look at the worst situations, that they've created or that other people around them have created and can really get themselves back to that place and maybe even get in the mind of and the heart of the people that hurt them a great deal, perhaps, and, and switch consciousness to go to walk in that person's shoes, they inevitably discover that underneath all of that was that other person's own pain and suffering And underneath all of that still was a longing, a desire to touch, to be loved, to be be whole in some way. You can believe it or not as you like. I leave it to you to look into. But it's an amazing thing even to reflect about the possibility that the basic nature of human beings in their hearts are good. To have that kind of understanding and trust to have touched that. I was called by somebody recently for uh, who wanted to see me, who, and she said, I'm having a really difficult time with my spiritual practice. I said, oh? She said, yeah, I've done a lot of years of this kind of yoga and that kind of meditation and Zen and Vipassana and this and that. She said, and then I just learned that my husband may have cancer recently, and everything has fallen apart. I can't do nothing. All my spiritual practice is out of out out the window. First of all, I reassured her that that probably wasn't so, but that she was touching something of the fears of loss of what we love the most of her deepest kinds of attachments that would be tr- tremendously difficult and challenging and perhaps a kind of grieving to go through, whether he's fine or not. It's the possibility of that loss. But that all of that is workable. All of that in some way is a part of our human heritage, of our birthright. We all have to come to terms with death. We all have to come to terms with pain. We all have to come to terms with limitation.
But the power of the heart and the power of our goodness is that it can overcome any of that. I don't know where the passage in the Bible comes. There's this beautiful passage about the power of love, that it can open any door and heal any wound and overcome any sorrow. There's no barrier too great. There's no pain too painful. There's no situation too difficult that the power of the heart can't overcome it. This isn't talking about the mind, and this is a very interesting and important distinction to make in our lives and in our practice. The mind can't overcome everything. You can't do it with your thoughts or with your ideas or with your ideals or your hopes or your fears or your pain alone. All of that and all of our reactions and our desires, all of that is part of the mind. And the mind has a certain amount of pain that's intrinsic to it, as the heart does. But the place that resolves all of our difficulties, the place that we can come to in sitting in silence in meditation, is really a place in the heart. It's a place of tremendous acceptance and opening. What does it mean to really value yourself? What does it mean to value your heart and your being, to to sense your own goodness, that you are basically and fundamentally good? What would it mean to live out of that? One has to have a lot of acceptance to do it. This is from Zen Master Ryokan. I've read lots of nice poetry of his in the past. But he has a series of poems that talk about his difficulties. There he is in his hut, and he's this old man. He says, here I am alone, wandering through the mountains. I come across an abandoned hermitage. The walls have crumbled. There's only a path for foxes and rabbits. The well next to the ancient bamboo grove is dry. Dust piled on the floor, the the stairway hidden by fall grasses. Crickets disturb. by my unexpected visit, shriek loudly. Looking up, I see the setting sun, unbearable loneliness. What an amazing thing for this old Zen master to say. Not like, beautiful sun and how happy I am, but here I am in the mountains and there's beautiful scene and there's no one to share it with. This other one, light sleep, the bane of old age. I doze off, evening dreams wake again, fire in the hearth flickers. All night a steady rain pours off the banana tree. Now is the time I'd love to share my feelings, but there is no one. Sadness. Thank you. I mean, what a treasure for him to say that. How beautiful. So the place that holds that goodness, the place where that goodness rests, is not a place where people don't die or where people don't get cancer or we're not lonely some of the time or there isn't suffering of other kinds in the world at large or in our lives. But it's someplace much deeper and and more basic than that to our being. The third Zen patriarch says that to touch this place is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. A very puzzling and amazing line. 
to be without anxiety about non-perfection. It is not perfect. I guess I've used Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's line and some other nights in the talk she was going to write a book that said, I'm not okay and you're not okay and that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) To be without anxiety about non-perfection which is to say that the mind has all these ideas of how the world should be, and that's not the level that one can touch in silence, that one can touch in meditation, that one can touch from the heart. The Lord Vishnu said to one of his devotees, I am weary of your constant supplications and petitions. So I've decided to grant you any three things you ask for. After that, I shall give you nothing more. Sort of a way to silence the man. The devotee delightedly made his first petition at once. He asked that his wife should die so that he could marry a younger and better woman. His petition was immediately granted. But when friends and relatives gathered for the funeral and began to recall all the good qualities of his wife, the devotee realized he had been too hasty. He now realized that he had been blind to her goodness and her virtues. Was he likely to find another woman as good as her? So he asked the Lord to bring her back to life. That left him with just one petition. He was determined not to make a mistake this time, for he would have no chance to correct it. So he consulted widely. Some of his friends advised him to ask for immortality. But of what good was immortality, said others, if he didn't have good health? And of what good was health if he had no money? And what use was money if he had no friends? Years passed and he could not make up his mind what to ask for. Life or health, wealth, power, love. Finally he said to the Lord, please advise me on what to ask for. (laughs) The Lord laughed when he saw the man's predicament and, and said to him, why don't you ask to be content no matter what you get? (laughs) part of the process of meditation and part of the process of spiritual practice is to come to a kind of rest in our being to a center that is unshakable and it doesn't mean that it doesn't move in the wind the wind comes and it blows around but somehow that there's a place in the heart of trust where we've touched an ability to feel all the things of life, of life, of death, of birth, of sorrows, of joys, what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And to accept every one of those, to come to rest. And then we can see things with a fresh mind and a fresh ear and a fresh eye. I was looking through this book that has studies of meditation. Anyone who's interested, it's got the summaries of 100 or 500 uh, studies on meditation. I don't know if they learned anything of much value, but one of the earliest and most famous uh, studies done was Kazumatsu and Harai in Japan, two Japanese psychologists. And it was the study of Zen masters on uh, uh, on one as one group and of ordinary non 
sophisticated meditators. And they put, uh, they hook them all up to electroencephalographs to study their brain waves. And then they rang a bell, the most famous meditation study, to test for conditioning. And they rang this bell. And after the bell rang for about 10 or 15 times, the people who were new to meditation, relatively inexperienced, uh, uh, gradually accommodated to it so that their brain waves made no movement after the 12th or 15th ringing of the bell. You know what that's like. You know, all you have to do is have a child and have it say mommy about 12 times and you kind of tune it out. It's called getting child deaf or something like that, <laughs> parent deaf. Anyway, they continued to ring the bell and the EEG would make a little little wiggle on its line if the brain registered it other than just at the, the sound or at the ear. After 12 or 15 times these people were conditioned. The bell would ring and every time they rang it, the 12th time, the 24th time, and the 150th time, for the Zen masters there would be a little wiggle on the line. And it really shocked them because they'd never measured this before in anyone and they asked the Zen masters about it and their response was something like, we sit here and we simply take what comes. We pay attention. We're not lost in thought. We're not expecting something else. When the bell rings, we hear the bell. When the bell stops, the bell stops. It was probably the best study in all of this book. <laughs> Somehow to learn to be present with life in that way requires that we have a certain measure of trust and faith that we've somehow touched this place of ourselves that we can really value, that our heart is good and strong enough and big enough to open to all of the world. Did you ever sit with something that was really difficult for you? Did you ever sit in your, in your practice where something had come up that was very, very hard? Suzuki Roshi talks about in his Zen Mind Beginner's Mind book, about what it means to come to the marrow of meditation. And he speaks about what happens when you're a parent and you find that your child has some incurable disease and you pace back and forth and you tear your hair out and there's nothing to do, there's nothing to do at all. And finally you sit and you sit right in the middle of that. Or some other great difficulty occurs in your life. He said, there's where you learn what it means to really sit. Have you ever experienced in your practice what it means to go right through the center of something? Just something worth your experimenting with. To go through the center of a pain or a fear or a sorrow or a longing where you sit and it arises and it's strong. It's not just part of the passing show, the kind of advertisements that come through the radio as you sit. But something much deeper than that, something that really catches us up, really overwhelms us. And you sit, and if you, if you stay on the edges because it's scary or it's painful or it's dark or it's too hard, then what you find is you, you bounce off it and the mind goes off and you come back a hundred times and it's still there waiting for you. Or if you go little ways into it, what happens is then you want to release it. You want to cry or shake or scream or whatever would cathart it in some way to kind of help dispel it or get rid of it. 
But how about if there's something difficult and you bring your attention right to the very point in the middle of it? This is something to really work with in your sitting when, when you get to those places. See if you can make your attention very keen and bring your heart and your mind together right into the middle to feel and touch the very center, the hottest place of the pain or the, the strongest place of the fear or the deepest place of the sorrow or the unbearable loneliness that Ryokan talks about. Right in the middle there. If you can do that, some very interesting things happen. Has anybody ever done that in your sitting? Anyone know what I mean when I speak of it? People are nodding. Things transform. They transform because at that moment when you go to the worst place in it, the very most difficult, it means that you're no longer resisting it, that in that moment you've accepted that which is there. And that's the movement from resisting and pushing away that allows things to unlock, to untie, for the, for the sure heart's release, for the heart and the mind to really open. We have different things that all arise, desires or fears or anger or pain. Let's take one as an example. Maybe you're, you have some real longing that arises or some deep fear. And so normally you acted out looking for relationship and love or you look for food or something to kind of keep you satisfied temporarily. And you say, all right, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go to the refrigerator or go to this person or whatever. I'm, I'm really going to look at it. And, and you feel that desire or fear and you go and you feel the reactions and your normal habits to it. And then you go further in it and you feel... What's in the middle of it is this wanting of love, maybe. I want someone to say that they love me, that to connect with them, to feel accepted wholly, completely, and fully. Why is it that we want that? Has anybody ever looked? What is it that makes us look for that? We do look for it, a lot of us, you know. Spend a lot of time and energy and not to speak of money and whatever. What is it that makes us look for that, for, for love? This is already a deep level just to feel that, looking for that love. If you look inside, you'll see that with that looking, there's a, it's like a coin, there's an opposite side to it, which is a place that believes that we're not whole that feels really separate and that somehow if we could get somebody else and maybe rub up close enough to them or have them say the right thing and hold us in the right way that it would get in there and we would feel like we weren't so separate anymore. And you can have that for a moment or two if you're lucky, but then it goes away. Because this small sense of ourself, the ego sense using it in the Eastern uh, terminology, can never really be complete. That's not the place where that completion happens. And it's always thinking, well, am I grand enough or big enough or valuable enough or lovable enough or something? That's the mind. The mind never gets complete. It just thinks a lot. It's what it does. It's its work. You let it think it's okay. That's its job. 
The place where the completion takes place isn't that, but it's really in the heart. And this going through the center of something is letting us sit, ourselves sit and find the place that we resist that's the most difficult and finding the, the center point of it, the still point, where everything turns around it and breathing and opening and just feeling that. And if we do, we can come through even this sense of separateness, of longing, of wanting something else to complete us. Through, there's like, a, uh, there's like an, an eye of the needle that you can go through. And when you do, you come out to, I shouldn't say what you come to, you've got to try it yourself. And it varies anyway, it's not the same each time. But there's sense of, senses of space or lightness or or really wonderful kind of contentment, all that come from finally stop running away when we finally just let ourselves come to be, which is to value ourselves, to touch the power of our heart and its goodness. T.S. Eliot, he's so great. I said to my soul, we don't have souls in Buddhism, but T.S. Eliot's okay. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope of the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not yet ready for thought. goes on. You say, I'm repeating something I've said before. I shall say it again. In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And where you are is where you are not. I don't know what he was doing, but where you are is where you are not. Wonderful. It's really like like reading uh, a Zen text. You must go by the way wherein you are not. To open the door of our heart or to sense the capacity of our heart to embrace the whole world, to see that our life moves out of goodness and it gets caught in patterns that you might call neurotic or greed or fear and things. Someone just chuckled at that. So there's a lot of neurosis. Okay. And we see that. But underneath all that is this longing to connect, this longing to touch, this longing to be somehow to be in communion with all there is, to love the earth and to love every other person. To sit is to come into the moment, to accept what is here, and then to relate to it, to respond to it wisely. Stillness and action both. The still point which accepts what is true and the action which comes in a spontaneous way out of that. 
To sit is to see our life very fully, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, what's actually here for us. And then to allow our heart to respond, to let the mind go on its way, its merry way, but to be silent enough and still enough that the goodness of our heart can respond, that our heart can be big enough and open enough to do that. And the present moment is the only place to find that. The present moment is the only place to smell and taste and hear and be alive with life. The present moment is the only place that you can love. If it's in the past, it's just a memory. Gee, that was a good love affair. Just a nice idea. If it's in the future, it's a hope or expectation. It's a fantasy. Wouldn't that one be great? But the only place that you can love the earth and love another person and love yourself and value yourself is here in the present. I end reading a kind of humorous dialogue with San Sanim, the Korean Zen master's uh, teacher. One student came to Master Yang and said, Master, please teach me the Dharma. And Master Yang said, I'm sorry, but my Dharma is very expensive. The student said, how much does it cost? How much can you pay, said the Master. Student put his hand in his pocket and took out some coins. This is all the money I have. Even if you offered me a pile of gold as big as that mountain, said Master Yang, my Dharma would still be too expensive. So the student went off to practice Zen. After a few months of hard training, he returned to Yang and said, Master, I will give you my life. I will do anything for you. I'll be your slave. Please teach me. Yang said, even if you offered me a thousand lives, my dharma would still be too expensive. Understandably dejected, the student went off again, not feeling worth much. After several more months of hard training, he returned and said, I'll give you my mind. Will you teach me now? Yang said, your mind is a pail of garbage. I have no use for, for, for minds of anybody, yours or anyone else's. And even if you did offer me 10,000 minds, my dharma would still be more expensive than that. So again, the student left to do hard training. After some time, he came to an understanding that the whole universe is empty. So he came to the master, empty meaning that it's not possessible, that it's not separate, mine and yours, and we all have a little piece of it. It's not that way at all. So he returned to the master and said, now I understand how expensive your dharma is. And the master said, how expensive is it? And the student said, cut! master said, no, it's more expensive than that. (laughs) This time when he left, the student was thoroughly confused and in deep despair. He vowed not to come back to see the master again until he had attained the supreme awakening. Eventually that day came, as in all good Zen stories, of course, (laughs) and he returned. He said, master, now I truly understand. Things are just as they are, just to accept things as they are. The sky is blue, the grass is green. No, 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 said Yang. My dharma is even more expensive than that. At this, the student grew furious. I understand already. I don't need your dharma. You can take it and shove it. (laughs) 
Kyung laughed. That made the student even angrier. He wheeled around and stomped out of the room. Just as he was going out the door, Yang called after him, wait a minute. The student turned his head. Don't lose my dharma, said Yang. Upon hearing these words, the student was really enlightened. <laughs> it takes a lot uh, out of us to accept life as it is. And by accepting it, I don't mean not being responsive and responsible to the suffering that we see out of compassion, out of wisdom. (coughs) But to really live in the present, to accept, to greet life from our heart rather than our mind is what our practice is about. And that's part of why we sit. It's a big part of why we sit. It's not really terribly complicated, and it means that you may sit and seem like nothing's happening, or you're sitting and the radio's on in your mind and it's playing the, the old newscast or um, soap operas from ten years ago, reruns of uh, The Honeymooners, you know, Ralph and Alice, or it plays, it does all kinds of things. That's, it's so we're bored or we're restless or the body's vibrating, that's not the point. It's can we sit and receive the moment to sit and say, what is here now? Can I receive it and come into the moment with my heart to touch it with some caring and some tenderness and, and reconnect with our goodness, with our capacity to open to all of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.